Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. So we're going to keep continuing on in our series, Glory and Redemption. And why would we do that? It's Christmas time. It's the first Sunday of Advent. Everything is supposed to change. Uh, No, actually, this series was meant to bring us to the point of Jesus coming. And uh, so it's perfect because we have journeyed through the whole of the Old Testament and hopefully you've joined with us and you've been able to see from Genesis to where we're going to land today, Malachi, the the need for Jesus and the promise of Jesus, the Redeemer, the Restorer, the Messiah, the man who is to come. He's all throughout the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament is relevant to us as believers today because it shows us the story of God's love and the need for revealing His glory through the redemption that is to come in Jesus. Now, last week we looked at the the exile period where God had sent his people off to captivity in Babylon. And during that era, when no Jews really lived in the area of Jerusalem or the surrounding area, the, the kingdom was destroyed, the city was destroyed, the temple was destroyed. And so Judaism and the Jewish people had kind of faded into, into obscurity. They were sent off into different areas in the Babylonian empire. But during those 70 years, God preserved his faithful people. And we see at the end of those 70 years, last week we discussed how God restored the sacrifices, God restored the temple, and he restored Jerusalem's wall. So he essentially gave to the Jewish people, he gave them back their spiritual identity. He gave them back their national identity, and he was reestablishing them for the purpose, eventually, of bringing from their midst Jesus, the Messiah, because it was necessary that they existed. It was necessary that the temple and the sacrifice and and the system existed that Jesus might be born out of it. And so you think since God had given the Jewish people everything back, he had restored everything to them and reestablished them as a people unique with worship at the temple and their own uh, city and, and growing kingdom that everything should be good, right? Everything, yeah, it should be, right? They've gotten everything they've been praying for. They remember the the punishment, the chastisement, the discipline that they received while they were in exile. And now God had given them back their kingdom, their worship, their sacrifice, their identity as a people. God had brought them back to a place and they should be all good with God, right? They they should be just like, oh God, you're amazing. We sing your praises. We want to be obedient. We want to do everything right. We want to be your people. But the problem is, that's not the case. And if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, uh, you can go to today's event in the Bible app and find this. But if you've got your physical Bibles in front of you, you can open to the book of Malachi. Malachi. And uh, that's on page 972 in my Bible. Um, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It is the last communication from God for almost 400 years for the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And so as we look at the book of Malachi, we need to understand that God has reestablished his people. He has given them their identity and their worship back. And 
Now he is going to call them to task for the fact that after all of this discipline and correction, they still are unable to walk faithfully. Uh, the, the pastor joke for the book of Malachi is Malachi, he is actually the first Italian prophet, Malachi. So um, if you've got that in your background, you maybe will laugh. Others of you will say, why did you say that, Michael? It's just what you got to do when you're a pastor. You got to crack the same jokes every time you preach from certain books of the Bible. So Malachi, and, and as we look at Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, we see exactly what the book of Malachi is. It is this, a pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And this, this first two words, a pronouncement, this is not just, hey guys, I got an announcement for you, but in the original language, as we look at the Hebrew, this word here, pronouncement, it is actually a word of condemnation and judgment. This is not just God saying, hey guys, I got a couple things I wanted to update you on as you have a kingdom again and, and you're not worshiping quite right. But this is instead a word of judgment from the mouth of God to Israel through Malachi. And so Malachi is the prophet. And this prophet Malachi is going to call God's people to task for their unfaithful behavior and attitudes. He's going to call out their unfaithful behavior, their unfaithful attitudes, and he's going to say, how is it in light of all that God has done for you that you still behave this way? Now, the book of Malachi is interesting because what happens is as God speaks through Malachi, what we see is not Malachi says, but instead God says. So verse 2, here is what we see. Malachi is sharing with the people of Israel God's words. And so verse 2 is this, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? And so the whole book of Malachi, this whole prophecy or pronouncement from Malachi to the people of Israel is going to follow this, um, this kind of practice of God saying something, here's what's happened, and then God imagining the response of his people. So it is, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you ask, how have you loved us? And so then God gives an explanation for what he means and what's going on in this relationship with his people. So first we see that the first issue that God has with the people of Israel, with the Jewish people, is they have spurned his love. They have told him that his love is inconsequential. And, and so God says to them, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you ask, how have you loved us? Now, God could do something like, he could list. Okay, so here's the deal. Every morning when you wake up, that's me. Every time you put food in your mouth, that's me. Every time you breathe, that's me. Except God, God doesn't get that petty and ticky-tacky. He actually goes to an old picture, an old example, and here's what he says, the second half, part, half of uh, chapter, uh, verse 2, and then into verse 3. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now you might go, what? what is, why is God talking about Jacob and Esau? Because I thought God said he loved his people. 
And then he goes to the, the history and go, starts talking about two other people. Well, here's what God is talking about in this. If, if we remember, we go back to the story of Jacob and Esau. What is special about these two brothers? Well, if you remember, they're twins. And Esau, where is he in status compared to his twin brother Jacob? He's the older. He actually should be the most important when it comes to tradition and history. And their father is Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, to whom God made the promise that he would make a great nation of his descendants. And so what would be the natural assumption is that Esau, as the oldest of the two twins, now you might go, how is the twin older? First one out, right? It was a competition. Uh, Esau, as the oldest of the two twins, he should be the one through whom God will work. He is the preeminent son. But here's what happens. While they're still in the womb, God tells their mother, Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger. And so God promises that the younger son is the one through whom he will work. So expectation is that Esau would be the favorite of God. But the reality is that Jacob was the one that was chosen by God. And this is God's declaration. I loved Jacob but hated Esau. Now, God is going all the way back to the formation of the people of Israel and saying, there was this point in time where I made a choice, and I chose you. I made a choice between two groups of people. I made a choice between the two, two sets of lineage, and I chose you. He doesn't say you deserved it. He doesn't say you were the best or the most powerful. He simply says, I loved you. Because that was my choice. How much greater example of the love of God can we get than, well, I chose you. You're mine. It's like walking into to the, 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 um, the shelter, right? And you're picking out a new dog. And they're all cute, mostly. And they're all kind of fluffy. And, and they're all going to eat and poop and drink and, you know, all that kind of stuff. There, there's really no difference how do you choose a dog in a shelter? You walk up and just go, that's the one. I choose that one. What made that one better? I don't know. I just like that one. But, but it's still just a dog, right? It's just a dog. But that was the one. It's, it's like God saying, I loved you for no reason other than it was my choice. And I got to choose you. So he's saying, how do, how do you know I love you? Because I chose you. That's how I know my wife loves me. She chose me. I look at the other list of suitors that she had, and she should not have chosen me. That was a poor choice. It's like the, the inverse of the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you know, where the guy's like, you chose wisely. No, for Shelly's like, you chose poorly. What? It was, she says it was just because of my blue eyes. Whatever, bad reason. We could say, God, you chose poorly. You chose people who were unfaithful. You chose people who wouldn't listen. You chose people who would rebel against you. And God says, that's how you know I love you. Because even in the midst of all that you did wrong, I still loved you. And the ones that I didn't love, the ones who actually were more powerful than you, were stronger than you, here's what I did. I turned their mountains into a wasteland. I gave their inheritance to jackals. Though Edom which is the nation that descended from Esau, says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of armies says this, they may build, 
but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. Now what's interesting, the difference between Edom and Israel is simply that God chose Israel. Because when we look at this, Israel, we, we see the description of Edom here. It says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country, and the people the Lord has cursed forever. The difference between Edom and Israel is that God chose Israel because Israel was a wicked country. They refused to obey God. They refused to follow his ways. God says, I loved you, and you didn't even deserve it. And how do you know I loved you? I gave you your own land. I gave you your own place in history. I took your more powerful siblings, and I, I decimated them for the exact same things that you've done. I have made them into nothing, and yet I have lifted you up as, to, as something. That's how you know I love you. And so God expresses his love for Israel in comparing it as though it were compared to the hatred for the pagan nations around them. I've done something with you, even though you don't deserve it. Then what we see in verses 6 through 14 of Malachi chapter 1 is that they despised God's name. Now, we can read, and it says this, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies. To you priests who despise my name, yet you ask, how have we despised your name? How have we despised your name? When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? They were bringing sick, stolen, lame, defective, worthless animal sacrifices to God at his temple and expecting God to just be like, oh, that's okay, no problem. I'm just glad you brought something. No, God required of them the best. And they gave him the least of what they had. God says to them, you wouldn't even bring your governor, the human ruler over you. You wouldn't bring him sacrifices like this. You wouldn't bring him these kinds of gifts. And yet you bring to me nothing, garbage, leftover, sick, stolen things. And expect me to count that as good. God is telling the people of Israel, not only have you spurned my love, you despised my very name you have taken, and by giving garbage, you have told me that's all I'm worth. Anybody ever feel that way on Christmas morning? <laughs> you know, you just get the leftovers. I remember one time, uh, early in our marriage, Shelly and I were at her parents' house. I had asked for something specific from them for Christmas, and, and we're opening gifts, and it was lots of socks. And, and then her brother opens a gift, and it's the exact same thing I had asked them for for me. They gave it to him. And it's just like, oh, they don't even like me. Cool thing is, is a little later in the morning, I got to unwrap the, that very same thing. It was a coffee mug. Yeah, woo. And, and then they gave me actually the, the second version of it as well. So I had two. It's like, they love me. Right? When we get good gifts, it's like, oh, I'm so valued, I'm so important, I'm so special. When we get garbage, it's like nobody cares. You, you see how the God of all creation, the one who's worthy of the very best and the highest, when he receives garbage, he's like, you, you have despised 
my very person, my very name. Here's what he promises them, though. He says this, my name will be great among the nations. There will come a day where all the nations will declare my glory. From the rising of the sun to its setting, incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. There will come a day, and in fact, I would argue that day has already come, where the name of God will be declared as great by all the peoples and all the nations. The word nations there, it's really related to ethnicities, people groups, not just like countries, but amongst every people group in the world. In every place, God's name is praised today. Can you see that? Without, without end, without limit, this promise has already come true, and it came true because of Jesus. God has invited the whole world to worship him like he deserves, and through the blood of Jesus Christ, now all over the place, all people can. But I'm kind of spoiling the end. So they despised God's name. They took him for granted. They gave him garbage. Not only that, but their priests failed to instruct in righteousness. It, it tells us that in, in uh, verse <clears throat> 7, the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should desire instruction from his mouth because he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. Priests, pastors, teachers should be held to a high standard of teaching truth and knowledge and glorifying God because they themselves are supposed to be serving as messengers of the Most High. But here's what the problem was in Malachi's day. You, on the other hand, priests, have turned from that way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. So I, so in, so I in turn have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you are not keeping my ways but are showing partiality in your instruction. As we read Malachi's or God's condemnation of his people in this word from Malachi, doesn't it sound a lot like our day and age too? Can you not see it in our own culture, in our own churches, in our own world, how people are belittling God, how people are spurning the love through Christ Jesus, how teachers are leading people astray, showing partiality in their instruction, favoring some over others, and creating classes and divisions amongst the people. We can see that, that not only do the, God's people suffer from these maladies, but if we put and look at ourselves in the same light as, as God is calling his people to look at themselves, we see that we're guilty of these things too. We're struggling in these areas too. And, and so this word is relevant for us in many ways, but, but it's really God saying to his people, I gave you everything and yet still you fail me. I've given you what you need to be right with me and, and your very leaders who are supposed to be leading you are leading you astray. Not only that, God's word says that they were acting treacherously against one another. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 16 says that they were marrying foreigners. Now, uh, there was actually an interesting discussion in Sunday school this morning. Excuse me, sorry, I'm getting excited again, still fighting the lingering effects of a cold. And, and talking about, is it, you know, is it right to marry interracially? 
Uh, is it something that God's word frowns upon? And, and we answered the question very simply. First, number one, there's only one race in God's word, mankind. And second of all, to marry against or outside of your ethnicity is really not a sin by any means. The reason it was an issue here it was not because the Jews were marrying foreigners of a different ethnicity, but instead they were marrying people of a different faith. They were diluting the true faith of the one true God by intermarrying with pagans. And what's interesting is God has reiterated the command of keeping ourselves pure in marriage in the New Testament, telling us we are not supposed to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That we as Christians, young adults and children, we should be looking for and praying for believing spouses so that we might continue to honor God in our marriages. But the people here today, they were marrying foreigners. And not only were they marrying foreigners, you had guys that were divorcing their faithful wives just to marry foreign women. And God's just like, what are you doing? Not only are you denying your faith by marrying these pagans, but you're also divorcing your own Jewish wives to go marry pagan women. What is wrong with you? Diluting the faith acting treacherously toward one another. Now, most of us would be familiar. If you look in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, most of us are familiar with the old King James translation of this, in which it says, <clears throat> God hates divorce. How many of you guys have that in your translation before you as it's open right now, where verse 16 says, God hates divorce? You can raise your hands. Big up. That's cool. Uh, you probably have a King James, New King James uh, maybe a New American Standard, uh, some of the more uh, older translations. What's interesting is, is this, that, that verse is actually really difficult to translate from the Hebrew, from what I've been told. Not that I'm a Hebrew scholar. I have to take the word of Hebrew scholars. So verse 16, actually, a better translation of it is to say that the man hates his wife and divorces her. Now, does that mean God loves divorce? No. But that verse does not, in the original language, seem to actually say God hates divorce. Now, we know from creation, one man, one woman, one lifetime is God's plan. But that verse, properly or better translated, is actually talking about the man in which it says, If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourself carefully and do not act treacherously. So to divorce your wife is to act treacherously against her and God. And you do not want to do that. But it does not actually say in the Hebrew, God hates divorce. So <clears throat> please don't use that as a club verse for people who are struggling in their marriage. Instead, encourage them to live faithfully in response to their marriage covenant not condemning them with God-hating divorce. Does that sound fair? Because um, those of you who've been through it, you know to have a Christian walk up to you and say, well, you can't do that because God hates divorce is not very helpful, is it? It doesn't, doesn't help you to reconcile, doesn't help you to move forward. Instead, if they say, how can I help you live faithfully in light of your covenant commitment? That's helpful. So anyway, that was a little aside. That was a freebie. Next thing that they did, they wearied the Lord with words. Can you believe? They made God tired with all the things they said. Um, <clears throat> it's, 
Yeah, everybody, anybody ever been around somebody like that? That person you're on a trip and they talk the whole time about nothing. Uh, that you, you understand what it is to be wearied with words, but God is very specific about what he means. In chapter 2, verse 17, he says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, well, how have we wearied him? When you say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with them, or else where is the God of justice? God doesn't say you've talked too much. He says you've said the wrong things. And the people of Israel in this day were simply saying that wrong is right in God's eyes, and that God is actually pleased with those who are wrongdoers because it simply wouldn't be fair otherwise. Does anybody hear anything that rings of our culture today in that statement? If you do wrong, it's okay. It's okay in God's eyes. That's how he made you. That's how he shaped you. It's not a problem. In fact, he really loves what you're doing because if he didn't, it simply wouldn't be fair. And God says that kind of talk makes him tired. It wears him out. To call evil good, to say that he delights in evil, and to say that his justice requires evil to be accepted is wearying to him. So God tells the people in Malachi's day, you're making my standards nothing, and in fact perverting them and twisting them and putting them on their head. And so God promises that he's going to send two messengers. <coughs> Excuse me. Two messengers. If you look with me in chapter 3, he says this. See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way for me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in, see, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. So God says he's going to send two messengers. First, there is the messenger who will clear the way. Now, Steve, stop working ahead. Steve's over here whispering John the Baptist. <coughs> and he's right. Um, <coughs> but you can't work ahead. You're spoiling. You're like giving the end of the movie before we're even there. But yes, the two messengers. Number one, John the Baptist, the messenger who will clear the way. Then the Lord you seek will, will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in, see he is coming. Who's that? Jesus. In Malachi, as God is condemning his people and saying, you have already screwed up all this great stuff I've given to you. I gave you back the temple. I gave you back worship. I gave you back your own city. I am establishing you again. And you've already screwed it up. You're already angering me. You're already just wearying me with your words and your sinful choices. But I promise you, I'm going to fix things. I'm going to send a messenger who will prepare the way. And then I will send a second messenger the Lord you seek, the leader you're looking for, the king you've been searching for, the Messiah I've promised. And this Messiah, this Lord, he's going to have two tasks. Number one, he will purify. And number two, he will bring judgment. A lot of us, when we look at Jesus, we remember his purifying work, but we miss the judgment. So let's look at this 
chapter 3, verses 2 through 4, here is what it says, that this second messenger, the Lord himself, who comes into the temple, what he will do. Will do. But who can en- endure the day of his coming? And, and who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's bleach. Now we see a refiner's fire. A refiner's fire would be required to take precious metals, to melt them down in, in a crucible, and then to remove the impurities, or even to get it so hot that the impurities burn off the surface. And then launderer's bleach, that we all know just how tough bleach is, right? And, and we're not talking about a bottle. We're talking about the dry, dusty stuff they dig out of the ground to launder their clothes. And it was harsh and abrasive, and it, it wasn't fresh-scented. It was, you know, eat-your-skin-off kind of, of harsh. That the purification that this Christ, this Messiah, this Lord would bring would be harsh like refiner's fire. It would be, be caustic like the launderer's bleach. And here's what he will do. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. This Lord who is to come, he will purify the people of God that they might present sacrifices in righteousness. And, and, and <clears throat> then it goes on to say in, in verse 4, And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. And so there'll be a time again where everything that's offered up to God through this new messenger will be pleasing. We actually learn not only for the Jewish people, but even for us dirty, stinking Gentiles. Through him, what we get to offer up is righteous and pleasing to him. Here's what else it says. It says in verse 5, I will come to you in judgment, and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies. Not only would this messenger come to purify, but he would also come to judge. What's interesting is Jesus, a lot of times we get really hung up on, on he came to die for our sins, but we also have to remember that Jesus' coming was God's final word on righteousness. To believe on Jesus is to be made righteous and to be holy and pure before God. To reject Jesus is to be condemned already and to sentence yourself by your unrighteousness and your rebellion to the punishment for sin and rebellion. And so the, this, refu- this, uh, this messenger will come. And, and God says this at the end of this passage, verse, chapter 3, verse 6, Because I, the Lord, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. In other words, God's love and character remains certain and sure. And so he will fulfill his word. He will not change. And when he makes a promise to redeem and restore, he will carry out that promise. So God, here in the middle of it, he says, I'm going to send a messenger who will refine and judge all of you and the whole world. Oh, wait, and I've got some other issues. (laughs) He says, that they've robbed God. And, and they say, well, how have we robbed you, God? And he says, you've withheld the tithe. Now, the tithe, that was a, a 10% that they were supposed to give of certain portions of their crops and, and, and increase annually. Uh, actually, it was two 10%s and once every three years, another 10% for the poor. 
And, and God says, you've been withholding. You haven't been giving generously. You have kept things for yourself that belong to me. And God says this in chapter 3, verses 10, and 12, 10 through 12. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. God says, be faithful to give to me what is mine. Be faithful to give to me what I have asked of you and, and even commanded of you, and I will care for you and provide for you, and all will see you as blessed. Not only were they spurning God's love and, and acting treacherously with one another and wearying him with his words, they were robbing God, and they also rose up and they were speaking out against God. They were testifying, they were saying things like this in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. You have said, it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. They, they were saying it, it's pointless to serve God. It doesn't make any difference. Because look at the wicked people over there. They're just as in good a shape as we are. Why bother? Anybody ever felt that way? I mean, like I said, as we, as we read Malachi, we almost see ourselves, we see our own culture. What's the difference? Why does it matter? And God says it matters because those, or they, those who fear the Lord will be mine, says the Lord of armies. <coughs> Excuse me. My own possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son, who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. In other words, there's coming a day where you'll be able to tell the difference. There's coming a time where you'll know who I love and who <clears throat> is experiencing punishment because of their white wickedness. There'll clearly be a distinction. That day is coming. So why do all these things matter? Because God then begins to say, that day where everything will be made clear, it's coming. And it's called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. So chapter 4 begins to tell us about the day of the Lord. Verse 1, here's what God says through Malachi. For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches, that there is coming a day of judgment in which everyone who is wicked and unrighteous will be completely judged, thoroughly judged. And that day is not too far away, according to what the New Testament tells us. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for they, they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing says the Lord of armies. There is a day of judgment coming. This is, this is actually an encouragement for us as believers to say, be faithful because your faithfulness will pay off and trust God because all that wickedness that you see around you that seems to prosper will one day be judged. 
and God will set things right. And so God goes to say, on to say this, Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. God says, the day is coming. You'll be warned there'll be a prophet, Elijah, who will come and, and try and set things right. And then that day, great day of judgment will be coming. And so we see that, that God is promising this, this series of events. For the unfaithful and the unrighteous Israel, he will continue to love them, to care for them. And he will send a Messiah who will come into the temple, who will redeem them, who will purify them, who will set things right, who will judge the wicked. And then there will be a final day of judgment in which all of those who have been refined and purified will be lifted up and all of those who have continued in their wickedness will be utterly destroyed. This is what God has laid out in the book of Malachi. This is what he promises. So even as we watch on a daily basis here, in this time frame, in Malachi's day, the Jewish people failing in their relationship with God. They're messing up in how they talk about him. They're messing up in how they're living in their relationships with one another. They're failing to worship him properly by bringing him garbage sacrifices. Even as they fail, God gives them hope. And what is the hope? There's a day coming where a man will come and he will make you pure and you will worship me like you should. And that day will also bring judgment for all those who refuse him and continue to walk in unrighteousness. So on this first Sunday of Advent, the Sunday where we light the hope candle, we look back into Jewish history and we say that even as God is closing up the Old Testament canon, he is leaving his people with hope. He is telling them, I want you to look forward to the day where there will be a man who will come and he will make you pure and he will make you right and he will give you the, the ability to worship as you should. And so we light this, this candle of hope looking from the Old Testament perspective forward knowing it was Jesus all along. God, his promise was always that this broken, frail, unfaithful people who kept falling over their own sin over and over again would one day be made pure by someone who would come and save them, Jesus. And so we have this hope in the Old Testament. And what this hope that, that God will send his messenger, that those who seek the Lord will be purified, healed, and made victorious, and that the unrighteous will ultimately one day be judged and consumed. And then as God gives them this hope, then there's 400 years of silence. Can you imagine? Just 400 years, God not saying a thing to you. I know some of you felt like it's been 400 days since you heard God blast. It's okay, be patient. His timing is unknowable, but he's still there. Live in the word that he's already spoken to you. Live in the things he's already said. Because that's what the Jewish people had to do. That's what the whole world had to do through these 400 years of silence is to wait for that hope of a Messiah, a king, a ruler who would make them pure to come to pass. Charles Spurgeon talks about hope this way. He says, hope itself is like a star not to be seen in the sunshine of prosperity and only to be discovered in the night of adversity. In other words, when we walk outside, we look up in the sky, how many stars can you see? Just the one, right? We call it the sun. 
But all the other ones, they're hidden, aren't they? The sun goes down. How many stars do you see? Depends on where you're at, but more than one. I always loved, we, we lived in Arizona for five years. We'd go up in the mountains, clear night. You could see everything. It's like you could see the face of God himself some nights. And it was in the darkness that you could see those things. Now, what's interesting is about, uh, about all of those stars. During the day, are they there? Yes. <laughs> Just in case you were wondering, yes, they're still there. The stars, you can go outside right now and you look. All of the stars are there, but what makes them visible? Darkness. The hope that God gives us, the promise that he gives us, it becomes even more real in the darkest times. It's always there, even when times are good. But it's in times of desperation and times of silence where we begin to see the stars of the hope that God has given to us. And his hope is for all of us. Here's what his word says to us in John 3, 16. This is how God ultimately and finally showed his love for the Jewish people and for all the world. For God loved the world in this way. This is the hope that he promised. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you have no other hope in this world... This is one you can hang your hat on. If you have nothing else you think is positive or right or good or worth living for, this truth that God loves you so much that he chose to send his one and only son, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the promised king, the promised messenger, the one who can purify you and make you righteous and bring you back into right relationship with God, he sent him because he loves you. And how do you receive that Savior? To believe in Him so that you might not perish on the day of judgment, but instead have eternal life. Because we miss the the next verses. We, We remember the gift and the goodness of God, but we forget that the gift of Jesus is actually a little bit of a double edged sword. Because Jesus is the messenger who would come into the temple and purify those who would receive Him, but also judge those who would not for god did not his son uh, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him anyone who believes in him is not condemned well that's nice hallelujah but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of god The Old Testament tells us there's going to come a day where God will send a man and he will rescue us. But when you refuse that rescue, Jesus is also the one who will judge you. He is the one who will stand over you and say, if I cannot make you pure, then you will never be pure and you are condemned to the death you have chosen. You see, in Jesus Christ, we have both the hope of eternal life if we will believe, but also the last word and the last chance to be made right with God if we refuse him. There is no time later. There is no different plan. There is no little bit more. But if you reject Jesus, you are condemned even now. 
because of your sinfulness. But if you receive him, you are forgiven and made whole and right with God the Father. Here's what, what God's word also says, Matthew chapter 12, verses 8 through 21, quoting the prophet Isaiah and speaking of Jesus. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. In other words, how to be made right with God. He will not argue or shout and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in him. Not, not countries, but nations there. It is all of the people of the world will find hope in him. This first Sunday of Advent, it is the Sunday in which we celebrate the hope that is ours through Christ Jesus. His first coming reveals to us that everyone who would believe on him might be saved and have eternal life. Everyone who believes on him might be saved and have eternal life. But we also have this hope now, that one day he will return again, and all evil and judgment will be dis destroyed will be removed, will be judged, which is good news for us and sad news of judgment for those who have not received Christ. And so in this Christmas season, I encourage you to be sharing the hope of Jesus with those you know who don't know him as Lord and Savior. Because while he is good news to us in these next four weeks, we're going to be singing and celebrating. And on Christmas Day, we're going to have breakfast together if you come. And we'll be celebrating with carols and, and who Jesus is. We are going to just have a, a high holy day and we are going to be rolling in it. The very same holiday that we celebrate and rejoice in, in all honesty, is a holiday of condemnation for everyone who will not believe. It is in Christmas that their very judgment is declared because the messenger has come to purify those who would receive him and to judge those who reject him. And so this Christmas, the best gift you could give anyone is the hope that comes through knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Share your faith, brothers and sisters. As we wrap up in the next few weeks, we're going to look at the the glory and the redemption that comes to us through our Savior Jesus and celebrate the peace and the love and the joy that can be ours through him as well as we come to know him as prophet and priest and king. And so I just encourage you, join in this Advent season. Make church a priority. Come Christmas Day. Did you know Christmas is on a Sunday this year? There are churches who are already canceling um, and saying, just watch something online. Well, good for them, whatever. May they be blessed. We're going to be here on Sunday morning, Christmas Sunday. Encourage all of you to join us. Because how, what kind of logic is it to say, happy birthday, oh, but we're skipping your party, right? <clears throat> um, in fact, we're going to go have a party over there and open gifts for ourselves in honor of your party that we're going to skip. So I just want to encourage you to be setting your mind to coming Christmas Day. We're going to have some breakfast to give you. You can come in your pajamas as long as they're appropriate. No Santa baby jamas, right? No, we don't need any of that. But really, put Jesus at the center of this Advent season. Look forward to his coming. 
but also fear for those who have not yet received him, knowing that Christmas for them is honestly a time of judgment. And his second coming will be a time of fear, not one of rejoicing. So let's share the hope of Jesus this Christmas season. Let's pray together and then our worship team will come up and close with our last song. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you loved us so much that you chose us, you set us apart. First, you, you did it for the Jewish people and then through them you brought your son Jesus and in him, now even us Gentiles can be chosen. We can be set apart. We can be made pure. We can be made righteous. And so we are so thankful. We rejoice in what he has done for us. We rejoice in his first coming because it is the greatest gift of all time. We rejoice in his promised second coming because it is the hope of restoration and new life and complete renewal. But help us also to, to lament those who have not yet believed and to give them hope through sharing the gospel. Make us brave. Make us fervent. Help us this Christmas season to keep Jesus at the center and not to allow gifts or, or gaudiness to overwhelm the truth of who he is and what he came to do for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you gave up all the rights and privileges of heaven in order to come and put on flesh, to walk 33 years without sin, suffering all the things that we suffer, and then to give your life in our place. You alone are our hope. Help us to share that with others this season. We Thank you that you've come and made us pure. We look forward to you coming again and making this world whole. And it's in your name we pray this morning, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's sing together our closing song.
God who, who were given everything and yet rejected him at every turn, then we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus can be the hope for people like us and the people we love and know around us. And so this week, rejoice in the hope that is yours through Christ Jesus and share that hope with the world around you. God bless you all. And there'll be email coming out later this week with all of the December events that are coming up so you won't miss a single one. If you're a ministry leader and you'd like me to include that, uh, an event you've got in that email, please let me know within the next 24 hours or so. God bless you all as you share the hope of the coming Messiah, the one who came and will come again this Christmas season. God bless you guys.